0: Today I sit down with Anne Hockett, who shares how her healing journey deepened when confronted with a life-threatening cardiac disease. In an effort to heal herself, she began to explore and educate herself in everything from Eastern medicine, natural modalities, spirituality, and everything in between. She found incredible healing on all fronts, and credits Hoffman to helping her solidify her life's purpose and truly understand self-love. Anne is the incredible founder of You Healing, a retreat based in Bali, and continues to dedicate her life and her purpose to healing others through sharing her gifts, talents, and most importantly, her loving heart. Enjoy. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Liz Severin, and on this podcast, we engage in conversation and learn from Hoffman graduates we will dive deep into their journeys of self-discovery and explore how the process transformed their internal and external worlds. They share how their spirit and light now burn brighter in all directions of their lives, their love's everyday radius. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm just so delighted to be here. Well, and I think one of the, the cool things about um, you being here is where you're joining us from. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about where you are in the world.
1: I'm in Asia at the moment, so I'm uh, sitting in an apartment in Singapore, but my home is in Bali. So I've, I've come here for uh, a stop off before I head up to Dubai for work.
0: International
1: traveler. Yeah, <laughs> who's keen probably to begin to clip her wings a little bit.
0: Fair enough. Well, do you mind sharing a little bit with us and the listeners about who you are and what you do in the world? Because it is so beyond fascinating.
1: Oh, well, thanks for that. I guess the shortest version is that I try very hard to show people how to feel better physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, uh, maybe better than they have in days or weeks or months or decades. And, And there are a variety of ways of doing that. And I've been doing this for at least 20 years, because I really believe that when people don't feel well or haven't slept well, their ability to be of service to themselves is really limited, which then means that their ability to be of service to family, community, and planet is less. So that's kind of the down-down of what I do, although I don't tell people that, but they figure it out after a while. And uh, like I said, I've been doing this for 20 years. So my background is in public health and medicine, and I had a pretty traditional career to begin with. I worked for the National Academy, the Institute of Medicine, the U.S. Secretary for Health, blah, blah, blah. I was a real bench geek. And then I got hit myself. So I was a CEO of a a small uh, internet-related company, I had been a triathlete prior, I was fit, I was happily married, two kids, and down I went. So I've had multiple surgeries, let's say 10, I've had four strokes, four near-death experiences, all in the company of a cardiologist, and I'm on pacemaker number two. In that context, I availed myself of everything I could that was Western uh, and that was going to hopefully keep me alive. But once I got to the end of that shopping list, uh, I realized no one's giving me much of a life expectancy. Why don't I start looking on the natural side, the side that I, of course, was such a medical snob I didn't even agree or believe existed. So I took a deep dive in in all of that, and I put a lot of that into play in my own life. And honestly, I've been so well ever since. I'm completely medication-free I do have a pacemaker, but I'm not pacemaker dependent, but my family would like for me to keep it in. <laughs> and it's been quite a, a humbling
0: journey physically. So what I'm hearing is that the main catalyst to kind of tipping into this more natural healing and kind of spiritual emotional began with this physical illness or this physical ailment of your of your heart.
1: It did. And it's actually really telling that it hit me at at heart center. But yes, so I at that point realized this this is happening to me. This is actually happening. I knew it was true. When I started putting in the uh, methodologies and modalities to get better, they could tell immediately that there was a positive impact on the degree to which I was pacing. So when the first pacemaker went in, I was pacing half the day and night, which is unbelievably uncomfortable and very draining on the body.
0: And when you say pacing,
1: Phyllis and So when your pacemaker fires, so it has certain parameters set. So if I went above 127 or if I drop below uh, 40 beats a minute, so that's your pulse, it will pace me. And so that feeling is like having your finger in a wall socket, if you've ever done that, or your computer charger, but a lot more than that. So it's a very internal landscape feeling where it's like, but nobody on the outside is aware of what's happening. And so that was was happening like more than 50% of the time. And now I pace 0.01% of the time. So basically I don't pace.
0: Congrats. Well, I I, I, yeah. I know,
1: <laughs> I know they didn't make a birthday cake for that or balloons for that. You know, it's like happy birthday, happy no pacemaker. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I know, I know more of your journey with that. So that is, that is a huge accomplishment, but I'd love to dive deeper into this because I think that it is, we talk so much at Hoffman about the body expressing, you know, what we repress. And so you said you were interested that it hit you at heart center. And what about that kind of tweaked with you and and did you find interesting?
1: Yeah. So I, thanks for the question. I mean, I I practice uh, medicine and healing from the mind-body perspective, meaning that the body is messaging, trying to talk to you all the time. And then when you don't, when I don't listen, it talks louder. And then if you really, really don't listen, which was my case, I walked right into a swinging baseball bat metaphorically. And so the fact that it hit me at heart center uh, resonates with me. Over the years, I didn't know this, of course, at the time, and I would have thought I was a nutter to have implied this could even be true. But I uh, was and continue to navigate the reality that I'm an overgiver, an overnurturer, that I always stand last to receive the best of what's available to be given or be received. I grew up in a, I often say terribly, but just let's say now, normally dysfunctional family where. Love didn't have a language. Love was we wouldn't do this to you if we didn't love you. So it was kind of a negative response, negative reaction. My mom was a an incredible athlete and that was what she wanted to do with her life, but got married in the in the fifties, had a first child, boy child, and then the second child four years later was me. And she was quite honest later in her life that that she didn't want to have another child and she definitely didn't want to have a girl child because she didn't know what to do with that. So I'm pretty sure that I clocked a lot of early messaging in the shadow compartment of I wasn't wanted. I'm not loved. I have to be perfect to be worthy of love. No matter what you do, it won't be good enough. You have to take care of yourself because no one else will. You know, self-reliance is your key survival skill. All these things that were set down early on in childhood that interesting and honestly served me very well. I mean, I I was very successful professionally because (laughs) I was this hyper- eager to please, don't know when to stop person.
0: So was it, would you say that, because I hear this all the time, right? I'm, I don't want to let go of things because he's actually served me, whether they're patterns, beliefs, whatever it may be. Do you think it wasn't until the physical manifestation that you kind of pause and it, that was brought to light or had some of this churning emotionally been happening prior?
1: Great question. I think the churn was happening since I was two. I think the subliminal messaging and the way I was responding based on that has been in my body my whole life. I think not until, and probably not unless, I did end up going through this terribly terrifying cardiac experience would I have ever stopped, dropped, and paid attention to what was going on. I only did that because my actual life expectancy was on the line. No, no one thought I was going to make it through this. And so when I realized that, it's like, why I have two young kids and a husband I adore. I've got nothing to lose. So I'm going to open the whole thing. I'm going to open every can of worms. And I saw a counselor who I still see and absolutely adore. And that process began to safely and incrementally encourage me to look at it.
0: And so um, from there, kind of beginning to open the doors, right? Beginning to look inside. Where did you go next? You kind of dove into some of the emotional, because I know I know this natural healing world and all of those physical emotional components are such a big part of your life. When did you kind of make that leap over and realize, okay, I believe this. This is working. This is healing me. I want to learn more. Okay. Can I ask you, have you
1: ever been so sure of something that, you, that you're quite stiff about it? You're just sure that you're right. Well, of course, Anne. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you can resonate with that feeling like, don't, don't even try to change Absolutely. my mind about this because I'm quite sure. Okay. So I, it just pains me to say it, but it's just true. I just have to be humble enough to say it's just true, that that was how I felt about Western hospital pharmaceutical based medicine. I That was how I was trained, right? And so here I have this experience where I start moving into the natural world and it's working and it's working quickly And it's actually working in a way that's measurable, which was important. So my medical team was seeing what was happening. Of course, discounting it the entire time out of love and concern for me, mostly. Um, But something opened, like a a large, beautiful door opened. And I decided that I would allow my intellectual, snotty, snobby filters to retire a little bit. And so I went on to... You ask what was the first thing. So I got trained in Reiki by um, one of Asia's best Reiki masters. I started feeling things with my hands. I started knowing things, but I didn't want to make the symbols. And she gave me the freedom to say, then don't use the symbols. You just do whatever you want to do. Then I went on to study body talk, hypnotherapy, all kinds of other Eastern ways of accessing pulse therapy. So you read people's pulses and know a great deal about what's going on in the body. So I, I just decided that I would experience as much of all of this kind of nutter world as I could. And each time I did, something about it informed me. It was kind of like, you know, when you get in the car and you're trying to tune into radio stations and a lot of them sound a little bit off. This process for me was allowing me to actually tune in. So the radio station was coming through loud and clear. So I was beginning to know things. This, this is where I sound really weird, but if it's okay, it just is my truth. So each time I had one of these mini strokes, I came back with an ability uh, that isn't considered normal. So I, I could see things. I knew things. I was receiving video clips. I would be on a plane or in an elevator and I, I knew what was up for that person, that, that they needed to have this scan done or that there was this certain issue wrong with their liver. And I didn't know what to do with it. So at that point, I really felt like I was moving into crazy lady land. And fortunately, again, I was able to find out here, people who had navigated these I want to say God given, but I don't want to put anybody off by that because I, I, the, it comes from elsewhere. It's not me at all. It just, it just travels through me, and I know that because each time information came, it was one hundred percent accurate, and when I shared it, one hundred percent of the time, not only was it accurate, but it helped someone.
0: And is, are those gifts, abilities? Is that something that you still are blessed with today? Is it still something that you bring into your work in your job and kind of with your retreats?
1: Yes. I, I think at one point in my life, uh, well, I don't think I know, at one point in my life, I tried to walk away from what was happening to me because I knew that I was being judged by other people, that I'd lost my mind, you know, that I'd lost my filters, that my intellect was, had gone down the drain. So I, I knew that I was paying a price for it in certain realms. But very fortunately, again, this lovely counselor, I remember him in a conversation with my husband saying, you know, is this okay with you, Steve? And he was like, well, it, she's not the person I married. And the counselor, you know calmly said, "Well, can you describe what the changes are, and you know how, how bad they are kind of thing?" And as Steve described the changes, he realized, as he was talking, that there's nothing wrong with these changes, right? Because I mean, he he has a master's degree in mythology, <laughs> so while he's an incredible intellect and does all kinds of normal things during the day. He, he tootled off to get a master's in, in mythology. So I knew I was safe. And then um, I started crying because my counselor said, Do you do realize that if Anne stops using these gifts, she will die? And he meant both emotionally as well as potentially physically. I agree with that. I think that it was hard coming, but the gifts that have come are gifts. They are gifts that I use in my work with myself, with my family, with. Uh, all that I do with you healing and I understand that that is why I'm here and that if I stop being of service I will stop being of service and and my time here will likely close out but I'm not worried about that because as I said I I had these four observed near-death experiences so I'm here for as long as I'm meant to be here and then I'm there
0: (laughs) and that's okay yeah well and I'm curious You know, as you were were talking about recognizing some of these patterns and beliefs of, I don't mean to say people pleaser, I don't think that was the exact words that you used, but some of these boundaries, how do boundaries show up in your life and how have you created boundaries? Because it sounds like even though you recognize that you are such a giver and it is still something that you do, that's very much part of your life, how do you set up these boundaries now for yourself?
1: Okay, so I could giggle for a long time because I have to admit that in my early 40s when all of this happened, I had no idea what the word meant except for you know, when it equaled a fence or a border of a country, but I, I had no idea what boundaries were. I had never been taught what they were. I had never set a boundary. I probably wouldn't have felt safe setting a boundary. So that took lots of time and lots of reading and podcasts and courses. And I have been somebody who's just so sort of gobbled up everything that's out there that I think is, is uh, legitimate. One of the questions that got posited to me early on in all of this was in a world with no judgment, underline that three times, in a world with no judgment, what is the most self-loving thing for you to do right here, right now? So in a world with no judgment, what is the most self-loving thing for you to do right here, right now? And that kind of long sentence with a few commas in it has guided me ever since. So I have this ability to feel in my body when I'm out of sync, when I'm not okay, either where I am or with whom I'm spending time or what the conversation uh, entails. So I know when I'm not comfortable. And then I ask myself that question. And I've only maybe in the last 10 years of my life, uh, and I'm on my sixth decade in the last 10 years of my life, have I really understood what boundaries are and how to safely and appropriately lay them down, share them. And the gift for me is I have two daughters that just turned 27 and twenty-six. They are so talented in this area. They are so practiced and skilled that they call me. They call me up on it, you know, mom, mom what do you really want to be doing right now? Like I might say, hey, does anybody want to stop and get a cappuccino? <laughs> and they'll say, well, they'll just stop walking and they'll turn around and go, mom, do you want a cappuccino? And I have to check in and go, um, actually I do They could. So would you like to go get a cappuccino now? Yes. Would you like for us to go get a cappuccino with you? Yes. Okay. So I have these two angels flanking me a lot of my life, helping me.
0: And you've mentioned a couple of times you healing. And I know that is the name of um, your company and retreat. And tell us a little bit more about you healing specifically.
1: Oh, I love to talk about this. So you'll just have to ring a cowbell to get me to be quiet. So you healing was birthed out of what happened to me. I remember literally being in my cardiologist's office with about 16 young tech guys trying to figure out what was wrong with the technology instead of what was right with me and i started to cry and so did my cardiologist but i wasn't crying like <gasps> you know it was just there were there were tears of bliss as they say up in rishikesh where i knew i knew what had happened why it had happened and where i was supposed to go with it i didn't have an earthly clue how but i knew that that was what i was supposed to do so i started healing. I started for the first six months seeing people free of charge because I wasn't really sure what would flow through and, and what my purpose would be. It became very clear in those six months and, and many of those early clients remain clients of mine to this very day. And so what I do is I, I work with the body physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. We unpack what's going on and physical is easy, emotional is a little bit harder, intellect is usually super easy, and spiritual is usually where we have a, a few knots to untie. And I then put together the best care plan I can based on everyone's uh, belief systems. So if it's more hospital-based or chemotherapy, for example, then, then that's in the care plan. But then I, I uh, knit in everything else that I know to be true in terms of how to heal the body. And um, in that, I also do a lot of work. I'm, a, I'm a, a black belt forgiveness coach because what I've recognized is that in a lot of unwellness comes the desire to be forgiven or to forgive someone else. And um, the other piece is is trauma. So I think I had mentioned to you earlier in our pre-call that I'm going forward to get either a master's or a master's and a PhD in trauma-informed counseling because that's what I'm finding is one of the first movers for all kinds of disease, dis be it physical or emotional. So my job is to um, sit and listen, which I do most of the day listen look to see what isn't being said, so negative space. And usually I end up feeling like I'm probably one of the top five people in that person's world who's really for the first time ever fully witnessed them without judgment.
0: And I know part of the, if it's one-on-one work, and then the retreats that you hold, fasting is a large portion of that. Is that correct? Yes. Care to speak a little bit more about the power of fasting and um, why you've brought it into your work and kind of made it such a um, crucial part of healing?
1: Um, okay, so the first quick answer would be, we know now uh, factually, clinically, evidence-based medicine that 80 to 90% of anything going wrong, whether it's acne or or leukemia, um, has to do with the gut. It originates in the gut. So gut health is everything. And positive gut health lays down a red carpet for health generally. How I got involved with it was uh, a friend of mine who was my master in every way, said, let's do a retreat together we brought together people who were high acuity. So they had three, four, five diagnoses, very seriously ill. They sent all of their paperwork to us in advance and we asked them after the end of seven days to go back to the same doctor, same lab, same radiologist, et cetera, to have a a check-in. The reason for that was to be able to compare apples to apples. We did one and then we did two, three, and four of those high acuity retreats because what was happening was a large percentage of the people who came were trending in a very positive direction and their medical teams were saying things like this is unheard of or you know this is impossible or this is you know quote a miracle so at that point i thought i was trying very hard not to do it but it became very clear that i was supposed to do it energetically it was clear so i just decided i'm going to go with this i think this is what the call is and the more i do it the more i realize people come in thinking they might lose weight look a little prettier take care of leaky gut or whatever, but by day four, they're very much in the fourth chakra in the heart space and they are opening up, blissing out, becoming very clear about the direction of their life. And by the time we close on day seven, no one's the same. The room is just so high because they're letting go not only of their physical, if I'm allowed to to be crude, they're letting go of their physical crap but they're also moving into the uh, power of getting into the emotional stuff and then the disconnect to spiritual.
0: They're fasting the for the entire seven days just on water or what is the, what's the protocol?
1: It's water plus Bali botanicals. So they're herbs that I've worked on for years now to put together that are non-GMO, not sprayed with any pesticides. I understand anatomy and physiology and actually taught it. So I do know how the body works and the herbs go in and work with each uh, pathway of detoxification and support each organ in the hard work that they're doing. Most people aren't hungry. <laughs> it's the first question, first question I'm always asking, am I going to starve or am I going to die? So far, no one has. And, you know, being hungry is a thought, but most people don't suffer.
0: Well, I'm curious because for me, what's coming up is I think the, the, it would be more of a mental challenge, right? And so I'm curious, does that come up for people? Kind of the the mental fortitude to be able to
1: abstain from food for that long? In all the years, I've just had two people actually cheat, and I can tell when they do. So, And that's that's a lot of people uh, who haven't cheated. And then the other is that the self-selection of people who, who fall into a practice like this are usually very high-achieving, poly-perfect, drive myself very hard, and so they they set themselves up to succeed. And part of my job is to distract them. So we're together for four hours a day or more, but we're together for four hours a day. And my job is to distract them and, and be funny and goofy and and give them information in a least common denominator way so they can take it on right then and and change their life.
0: What I'm curious about is the kind of taking this holistic approach of the body, of the mind, of the emotions, of the spirit. And so you're saying kind of first pathway in for these retreats that you set up is is the uh, fasting. And then are there other practices brought in to sort of support, you know, an emotional deep dive or spiritual connection or quieting that intellect?
1: Yes. So the intellect gets quieted probably by, by day two. And then by day three, kind of roundly dismissed from the retreat. And people feel it in the retreat, I'm trying to drop in as many of the practices that I use to try to help me be better day by day or year by year. So uh, while we get through the content that is relevant for fasting and how the body works and what the power of pH is and how to breathe is if your life depended on it, by day two or so, top of day two, people are usually really open. So then I sort of scan the room and figure out what it is that people might like to talk about. And in some places we, like in Bali, people go deep very quickly because they have a a culture of trust and it's deep. In other places, let's say New York or Dubai, perchance, there are issues with trust. People traffic in other people's information. So I have to be aware of that. When you asked me earlier about boundaries, that's, that's my job. And people say safe space is just a bunch of language, but it's actually um, a spiritual practice to create safe space so that people can afford to be themselves.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think, that's, I think that's the power of creating a safe container, right? As it's, and like you were saying, sometimes just witnessing people for the first time in a way allows them to finally feel safe and okay, I can begin to kind of release and reveal parts of me.
1: Yes. And, and I want to really honor the Hoffman process. I'll try not to tear up with this I really want to honor the Hoffman process. I caught myself the other day, uh, it was a casual dinner party, but someone um, was, was suffering and I was sitting next to that person and they were talking about, you know, what do you offer with your healing? And I said, I went to the Hoffman process and explained blah, blah, blah about that. I think we'll get into that more. But I said, what I, what I came out of the Hoffman process with was non-judgment. That I walked into a room of people that I thought were better than me, looked more put together than me, only to realize over the course of the, of the course and getting to know each other, that we, we all share the common human bond of the Buddhist version of suffering. By the end of that week, I would have given anyone in that room a kidney. Anyone. I couldn't find judgment in me anymore for the experiences that they were brave enough to bring and share. And that has lasted in me since then.
0: Well, let's dive in. When did you do the process and how did you hear about it? I was hoping you'd look that up. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, it's been a number of
1: years. So, Steve and I, my husband, my first husband, and my forever husband, uh, we have been married 35 years. And I think we went around 32 years or 30 years, maybe. Because I remember saying to him, while I love you deeply and completely, and I want to be together forever. I don't want this version of the relationship to be the version that we go 30 more years with. And we had come up, at the time we didn't know what was happening, but we had come up against two pretty powerful triggers. My trigger for needing to be seen whole, witnessed completely in my mess and my beauty and glory. And his trigger of mess being a place that's very unsafe, very dangerous. You have to armor up or run for your life. So, that's just one of a couple of things that were happening for us where I wasn't feeling safe with him, he wasn't feeling safe with me, but we were very much in love with each other. So, the good counselor I alluded to earlier in a session very gently arrived Steve at a point, and he's a Hoffman-informed counselor, that's probably critical, uh, arrived Steve at an understanding that there might be some shadow driving him. And maybe he would be well-served to go. So Steve went. And three months later, I went. And that process, I talk about to everybody, anywhere, all the time around the world. Because it has changed our relationship forever. When we hit moments that are really difficult, we have some of the skills that are Hoffman or Hoffman-informed that we use regularly to understand what's happening and to be safe and to move back into a loving space of trying to heal that it changed everything I went well I was glad that Steve went because if I'm honest I was sure that everything that was wrong in our marriage was his fault I was absolutely certain of that. I mean how could it be mine (laughs) oh my god how could it be mine so he goes and um, I'm also terrified this probably resonates with other couples who've done it because as he's coming out of Hoffman, we're at our daughter's uh, first-year college parents' weekend, a little bit loaded. And so that, that could inform me as to when we did it. So that's probably now eight years ago. So I don't know if he's going to come in saying, I want to get divorced. I don't know if he's going to come in giving me all kinds of information about our marriage that I don't know. I have no idea. So there's a part of me that's terrified. And because I was a really big girl back then, I just stayed out with my daughter and went to a college party. (laughs) So by the time I got back home to where we were staying in this uh, Airbnb, he was asleep. So I I felt kind of a metaphoric few that I I wasn't going to have to deal with it that night. And then the next morning, he was so loving, so um, effusively clear about his learning that I almost didn't know what to do with it because I was so braced for the opposite. I was so terrified because I had heard right or wrong, I don't know. I'd heard a lot of people go to Hoffman and then a lot of people divorce within, you know, days or weeks after. So I had that in my, in my mind. I do not know where that rumor comes from.
0: (laughs) Um, I don't, but uh, because what I, what I hear more time and time again is just what you're speaking of is this, um, one partner is blown away by the partner showing up differently than they've expected differently than their previous relation, you know, the previous way they'd held the relationship kind of allowed for. And they're like, what? And then through that, they get curious and it's like, well, I got to see what this is all about. So how was it for you?
1: It was amazing. I I think I had one of the best small groups. I think I had an incredible large group. I went in December and I also built in a lot of time, as Hoffman had suggested that I do afterwards, which was really also a a follow on epiphany for me to to move into that solitude. I will say that my little person showed up. My little person was still sure that Steve was most of the problem. I knew I'd had a fed up childhood and I knew a lot of things had happened to me that were trauma inducing. And I I knew that they'd had a negative impact, shadow impact on me. But I still went in thinking, well, you know, I'll meet a lot of interesting people, and I'll probably learn some skills. And Sudas was my um, small group leader, and I I just remember her eye contact right at the right moment. I remember her coming over and sitting on that couch that was in the back of the room. And me just going blah, 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 and her not interrupting me, and then me just starting to laugh. So I would shift from crying to laughing like an insane person, and she would just start laughing with me. She was so skillful in gently encouraging me to sit in my own stuff, which I honestly think took me four days to do.
0: (laughs) Well, and and that brings me to my next question, and I love to ask all of our guests this when is a moment in the process that you remember that you feel like really landed you there? You're like, "Great, I'm so glad I'm here," or could have been blown an insight wide open for you, or something that just deeply moved you. There were so many
1: that I'm sure are are common to people. When you know you hear people tell stories, and you just can't believe the courage for them to get out of bed and brush their teeth. You think you put yourself in their boots and think, "I, I couldn't." I could not have survived that, much less thrived that. So, so there were many, many moments of that. But a moment that changed me and actually was a healing for me, and again, I'll try to get through this. I had been brutally assaulted and raped when I was 14, almost 15, really left for dead. And I was in, I don't even know what the room was. It might have even been the main teaching room by myself, kind of in a corner with one of those big fat pillows that we pounded the hell out of. And I was holding it at my chest I was just uh, shaking, kind of uncontrollably holding this pillow. So I was fully in this traumatic experience. I was, I was fully in the memory of it. And I was so upset with myself that at the time, I could not call out for help. I couldn't do anything to save my life, although ultimately I did. And I didn't know that there was anybody else in the room. I was so in my own Idaho, I had no idea, that there were two people in the room. And the two people in the room were men. At some point, I felt that there were other bodies in the room, but I was, I was crying, my eyes were swollen, my eyes were shut for the most part. And in an instant from that, knowing that there were other people in the room, they... Uh, I'm not going to make it through this. Okay. These two men, who I do know because they're in the larger group, they're not in my small group, they come one on my right and one on my left. And they are holding me so hard, so they're actually kind of hugging each other, but I just happen to be the jam in the middle. And they're holding me so tight that this TET response that I'm in, the shaking of my body feels very safe. And so I just let it rip. I, I don't know who they are. I don't open my eyes, but I feel really safe and I can feel their breath and I can feel their heartbeats. That's how close we are. We're like a three, we're three hearts. And they're just whispering in my ear. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And I think they kept saying, you're safe and I'm just bawling and it's all coming through. And I, I, I eventually, and I don't know if it was five minutes or if they were there for two hours, I stopped the tet. the fast physical body response stopped. I let out this unbelievable, like mammalian animal in pain grunt. And I opened my eyes. But that moment of having two relative strangers move in without any conversation and hold me and heal me and whisper to me what they did was again life-changing. At that point, I lifted up into pure, unadulterated forgiveness of the perpetrator of that crime. It was gone. I And I, I felt, and I can tell the story of that without feeling any pain. So that was huge for me.
0: Beautiful. I thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think that highlights just one of the many ways that, you know, being in that, as we keep talking about creating this safe container and allowing that emotion to kind of complete In a way, you know, space to experience something that perhaps you'd been avoiding or, you know, unable to look at. It's beautiful. And as we think about the process, how do you feel it lives in you today? I know you say you talk about it a lot and you, you know, share it uh, with others. But how do you feel like it kind of, you know, the, the podcast we talk about, Love's Everyday Radius? And I think it's just a beautiful sort of imagery of like how the process moves us, changes us, and how it ripples out and impacts those around us. Okay, I'm just wiping tears away
1: with a um, very rough paper towel I should have known. (laughs) They say there's a Harvard study for every time you cry, you gain a day in life expectancy. My kids are always like, mom, you're going to live for freaking ever
0: that. I I did not know that. Um, I did not know that fact.
1: It's apparently a study that's been repeated. So your question is, how does...
0: How does the process
1: live in you today? What are some of the ways? One of the first things is my ability to love myself, I think really began at Hoffman. I had words around it, I had some counseling around it, I had some other retreats and things that I'd gone to, and I understood the words, I understood the value of it, but I don't think I really had any practice around it that was functioning. I left with a a deep, deep understanding of who I am, and I left with that deep understanding of who I am without the degree of shame that I had around my shadow patterns. I... Realized that I'd spent half my life putting a hurtin' on one person in my life when actually there was another person that I, my whole life couldn't afford to see in the light of day. Hoffman brought that light and awareness to it. And I was also through a couple of practices that we do while we're at the Hoffman experience, I was able to move into deep forgiveness. First acceptance, and then into deep forgiveness for, for the reality that there were there were several perpetrators. So one I think is self-love, which is a practice that I regularly that question, you know, in a world with no judgment, what's the most self-loving thing you can do right here, right now? I ask myself that a lot, and I try to operate more from that because I have historically been an over-nurturer. In my relationship with my husband, on my good days, when I'm all full up, I've done my meditations and I've done my self-care, he can safely go sideways. And I can hold that space and know that this is actually not about me. This is a bid for love because he's in pain. So I don't need to brace. I don't need to armor up. I don't need to run away. I don't need to protect myself. That when we do it is an amazing experience in our marriage where we can shift things and change things right then. There are other times that maybe I don't have that capacity or I can't be that person for him. So it's, it's definitely continuing to work like a live current moving through us, the skills that we learned at Hoffman that we continue to use and that we lean in when we feel out of sorts again, which, you know, does obviously happen. With my work, I feel like what I do is I offer hope. My backpack is full of hope and and that comes from hearing other people's experiences, which is what some people say hope stands for. So I've heard so many stories of pain, of Shame of, and I I think that Hoffman, as I mentioned earlier, allowed me to not just intellectualize open heartedness and lack of judgment. It allowed me to really feel it because I received it while I was there, pretty much from everybody in our group all the time. And I I do feel when I sit in my client work that 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 is what I'm able to offer. I'm able to listen and see it as it is without any judgment of the other person or really any need to fix the other person. And I think the last piece is that I felt this way before. So I grew up in a a Quaker. My grandparents were Quaker and my grandmother was, well, both of them were were of tremendous service. And so service was something that was served for breakfast. You know, it's if you have any skills or any anything, whether if you have $10, give eight away. If you have intellect, give 90% of it it or teach. So I've always been a person of service. But I think post Hoffman, I became very conscious about what it is that I'm actually doing. what What really is my reason for being here? And I feel quite clear with that. so i would I would credit Hoffman for all of that.
0: Well, and I could probably dive in and ask you a million more questions because you touched on so many pertinent, big, loving, intriguing topics. So I want to thank you for that. And I really want to thank you for um, sharing with us your, not your mantra, but your, you know, that question you ask of yourself. If, if, so I'm hoping you could repeat it once more for us. I can.
1: In a world with no judgment, that's the big part. In a world with no judgment, what is the most loving thing I can do for me right here, right now?
0: Well, thanks. I hope that question allows people to, to ponder and pour some love into themselves. And so I want to thank you again for spending your morning, um, my evening with us and just opening up and letting us see a different side of you.
1: Well, thank you. I It is a different side because I never talk this much. <laughs> I'm always in, in a posture of listening. So I appreciate you listening and listening so deeply and Again, I just want to wrap my side up by saying that out of all the things that I've gone to and and the world that I have searched over, the Hoffman process is and remains the most powerful thing I ever did, ever. And I share that reality with a lot of people. And I always say, you know, when when the pain is staying the same exceeds the pain of change, go. Don't even think about it, just go. When life arrives you at that point, place and everybody knows what that feels like right it's the perfect time to go and it's a gift that we've offered our daughters who i said were 27 26 when it makes sense when they feel like it's relevant for them when they have enough life experience underneath them because they both recognize that their parents are not the same and and therefore our family is not the same it's better well thanks again ann you're very welcome thank you Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation.
0: And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation.
1: Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love.
0: In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to HoffmanInstitute.org.